Jagger, Richards, Bolan, Parfit, Rossi, Wood, Boyle, Carr, Dodd, Sutherland. Just a few of the names who have graced the stage of the location for this week's podcast, ladies and gentlemen. We are at the beautiful Lees Cliss Hall in Folkestone for this year's Nudgestock. We're currently walking on the promenade in front of the venue. Breathe that behavioural science in. The waves of the English Channel kissing the cliffs below. I'm Romy Mike and today the team and I will be probing the great and good of behavioural science. We'll be soaking up the sights and the sounds, tasting the candy floss. We'll try and grab Rory in between costume changes. We'll chat to some of the attendees, where they come from, who they are. Um, let's go and take our seat at Folkestone's premier behavioural science festival. Keep off the bad acid. So here I am with podcast favourite, Mr. Dan Bennett. Um, Dan, can you describe what you're seeing? So I'm looking out at some yachts on the Folkestone Sea, which are in 40 degree heat. The Folkestone Riviera. Folkestone Riviera. Um, on the balcony at the back of the stadium. The reason why we come to Folkestone is that it's full of surprises. And, and actually, if you want to get people to think differently, you need to start by changing the context to change the perspective. Um, I th- so I think coming down to Folkestone's is the, the, one of the most important parts about Nudstock. Great. And how many, how many of you been? You've been to the mall? Yeah, we did the first one in Shoreditch, at the end of my road. <laughs> then we did the second one in Deal, because we already had a house there. And then we've done three, four, five and six um, here. And then next year, who knows? And how has it, how has it changed over the, over the six years? The first year, I think we had 22 speakers. So we were really going for like five minute, 10 minute slots. Yeah. And by the end of the day, people. The TED format, I think. The TED, known yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, chicken or egg, we don't really know. <laughs> but, um, but we know that people were tired by the end. Um, so now I think we've really built. The thing that we've really worked hard on is getting the feel right of the day. Do you know what I mean? I think kind of when you, you walk in, you see the staging. The fact that we open with Mr. Andy Bad Robinson and we have. Um, all the food stands and the guest list is amazing. We've, we've just worked on making the, what you might call, vibes. Hmm. What do we want people to take? Because different people take different things from it. What do, what do we want people to do with this day? I think what we want people to do with this day is to start thinking differently and just and doing things differently. So, which is part of the, the Folkestone context. You go into a place you'd never normally go yeah. and you're listening to things you'd never normally listen to. And then hopefully off the back of that, you'll do things you'd never ordinarily have the permission to do before. Ace, what a beautiful way to end this segment. Right, let's go in. Yeah. It's uh, people are arriving. The vibes being created. Let's go. Good luck, Roman Mike. <laughs> okay, so I'm outside with Michael Paulin, who I've literally just grabbed, and he's just come off stage. Um, your talk was titled Biomimicry. No George Shove, which is an amazing title for us. Can you tell the people not as lucky to be here what it was about? Sure. Well, biomimicry is about uh, looking at how nature has solved problems. 
and, and then using that understanding to address human needs. So a simple example is Velcro. That, that was actually inspired by seed burrs. Amazing. But now we know vastly more about biology and actually we can find some amazing solutions. Particularly for architects, we can find examples of efficient structures, greener materials, more interesting ways of bringing light into buildings and so on. And that, that's the essence of biomimicry. And is that because we're essentially, we've come to the stage where if it works in nature, it's essentially a pretty good standard of formula. Well, yes. I mean, you could look at all the things in nature as, as proven solutions because, yeah. you know, they've, they've survived the, the rigours of uh, evolution, which has killed off all the less successful uh, ideas. Structures, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, so definitely you, you can look at it that way. Um, it's like a sort of design source book in which all the products have benefited from a 3.8 billion year research and development period. <laughs> How did you first see the kind of bringing architecture and design from... Uh, from kind of nature what was how did how did you first come into this it's something that nearly all architects encounter in a small way during their studies yeah. uh, but it was really when I started working on the Eden project I was fortunate to join in the yeah. early stages that was when I realized that there was so much more to it and particularly when I went on a, a, a one-week intensive course at a place called Schumacher College uh, and you know, prior to that, I'd been going to loads of conferences and frankly, listening to architects sort of bullshitting about how clever they are. <laughs> but I'd learned more in those five days at Schumacher College than I had learned in the previous 15 years of, of going to yeah. conferences. And, and it was taught by two real luminaries in the field. And, and I just realized then that there was a, a huge array of untapped ideas and solutions that we could all implement uh, to create better places to live and work and play. And I've, I've kind of, I, I know people who kind of work within architecture and, and your name has come up. Do you, is it, is, is the kind of your way of thinking kind of being brought out more into the discipline, do you think? Well, at the moment it's still only a, a, a fairly limited um, number of clients that are employing it. It, mm. it. it tends to be the clients that are a bit more adventurous. Yeah. They want to go beyond standard approaches to sustainability and, and go further with saving energy and water and and making a better environment for people so you know i, I mean i wish there was a, a wider uptake at the moment it's 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 uh, there's only a few people really demonstrating leadership but it's, it's definitely growing amazing nudge stocks or what we think is and what we're always already mentioned today is about bringing two disciplines together how it, to solve new problems or look at problems in a new light how mm. important do you think that is in kind of problem solving Oh, it's absolutely critical. You know, the, I, I always think the most interesting things happen at the intersection between disciplines. And so I always try to work with polymaths. Uh, when I'm assembling a, a design team, I'll always try and find people who are good at thinking outside the constraints of their own discipline. And and it, it can be a really enjoyable experience when, when the, the conversation is in full flow and the barriers break down between disciplines. Yeah. And, you know, the engineer starts talking like a landscape architect and the chemist starts talking like wow, a, yeah. uh, an architect and, and so on. And th yeah, that's when it becomes really rewarding and, and, and produces fantastic results. Amazing. Uh, where can we find out more about you, kind of your information, the stuff that you do? Uh, well, a couple of sources. Uh, so my company website, Exploration Architecture. I, I, I'm a recent convert to Twitter, so, so yeah. by all means get in touch with me that way. I do have a book, uh, biomimicry and architecture uh, which is selling well and I've also got a TED talk uh, which has been um, online for, for a while. 
Amazing. Right, I've literally grabbed you as you come off the stage, so I can't let you cool down because it's boiling out here. But thank you very much for your cool. time. Thanks, thank, Michael. Thank, thank you, you, you very much. So I'm here in the bowels of uh, Lee's Cove Hall with uh, Michael Frolick, CEO of Ogilvy. Uh, Michael, you introduced the day. I did. It was quite overwhelming, actually. So I've, uh, I've never been to an stop before, and it's, it's incredible. It just the setup, the amount of people... The atmosphere—it's—it's uh, it's proper rock and roll. It's amazing. <laughs> Why do you think that behavioural science has such uh, an important place in marketing? It's really simple. Um, ultimately, all we're trying to do in marketing is to get people, individuals, um, to do something differently, to buy something, to uh, adopt something, to give something up, whatever that might be. And behavioural science is at the core of that. Best uh, the understanding those people and what motivates them and how we can change their behaviour is what marketing's always been about. Um, and what we're doing, uh, what we're always doing, and the team's doing is really helping us understand much better how that works. And do you think there's opportunities for behavioural science to solve bigger problems than communications? Oh, absolutely, undoubtedly, and um, and already, um, I think. Um, Ogilvy have really started to look at that and, and started to help clients in a much bigger way, uh, particularly when it comes to um, kind of sales. Well, and, and everything from safety to I mean, there's loads, yeah. there's absolute loads. Um, and as we go forward and we start to put uh, business transformation kind of more at the heart of what we're doing with clients, um, I think behavioural science uh, is going to have a really important part of that. Brilliant. Okay. Well, I'll let you get back to it because the speakers are on. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Okay, so uh, that seems like it's a first break. Uh, let's see if we can go and find Jordan, who's about inside, and see if he's uh, been able to track anyone down and have a word with them. We're here in the main hall. Um, we've just had the first set of acts here at Nudgestock, and we're going to try and chat to some of the attendees, find out what they've made of it so far. Um, Firstly, uh, if you could just sort of introduce yourself, uh, your name, who you are. Yeah, so hi, I'm Miriam Jordan Keane. I'm uh, head, of, head up the marketing efforts for British Gas at the moment, but actually just about to become CMO of the NCS Trust. So very excited about that. Fantastic, and thank you so much for coming. Um, any sort of highlight of the morning so far? I know we've only had a few speakers. I am such a Rory fan, I have to say. Every time I see him or hear him speak, I'm just blown away. I think all the speakers have been great. I think there's always something new here. This is my favourite day of the year every year. But the way Rory's mind works is just incredible. Fantastic. Uh, anything you're most excited for this afternoon? Any speaker in particular? Uh, do you know what? I'm really just looking forward to all of it because having heard Michael speak about you know, the inspiration that he was getting from, from the biological world, Again, full of surprises, so I expect that there'll be lots more to come. Fantastic. And just finally, sort of, how do you see the importance of behavioural science and nudge stock, kind of talking about it in sort of business terms and helping Absolutely. businesses grow? I mean, I've been using it for years because I used to be Chief Brand Officer of Weight Watchers and obviously behaviour change is a big part of anything like weight management, smoking cessation. But I think for all brands, learning to engage with customers where we are nudging them as opposed to in the past when we might have shouted at them, it makes such a difference in the relationship between brand and consumer. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks. Could you sort of introduce yourself, your name, who you are? Yeah. 
So my name's Lizzie Kenyon and I'm director for the Centre for Social Innovation at Keep Britain Tidy. Brilliant. Uh, and have you been to Nudgeluck before? Is this your first time? This is my first time. I'm here with a colleague who's been before, so we're really excited. Um, and what have you thought of the day so far? Just at lunch now, I've had the morning speakers. Any sort of key, key thoughts? Uh, it's been a really diverse range of speakers, really from outside of our sector, so it's great to hear about ideas of practical application of behavioural science, and that's really what we're here to learn a lot more about today. Uh, anything you found the most interesting, the most likely you'd be to, to share with someone else when you get home? I think the whole, the whole discussion about context being important is something that we're already applying in our work. So a lot of our work is on littering and waste behaviours and we're um, thinking about how context influences different behaviours. So it's really good to hear some of that confirmed today and to have um, sort of further thinking and insight on that. So far it's been a great opportunity to come together with like-minded people who are um, interested in, as I say, those practical applications of, of behavioural science um, and yeah, great opportunity for kind of cross-fertilisation. So yeah, I'm excited to come next year too. Thank you so much. Okay, well, I am with Ruth Morgan. I've grabbed her just as she has come off stage. And Ruth, you have just blown my mind, but not in a good way, I don't think, because essentially now I'm frightened of leaving any suggestion of my DNA anywhere in case it can be used against me. Um, can you just give us a bit of a background of your, your talk and how DNA, forensic science and behavioural decision making all join? <laughs> Oof, um, that's a big question. I think, it, first of all, I think don't, don't worry too much. Good. Um, it's, don't have nightmares. Don't have nightmares. Um, but I think it is something that people don't always appreciate quite how sensitive the techniques are, quite what can be found. And if it's in the wrong context, it can be seen to mean something completely different to what it does. Um, so I think that's it was really cool hearing Rory speak earlier about how tiny, tiny differences can completely change how we perceive the evidence. And I think that's exactly what we're having seeing in forensic science. A lot of cases, things are pretty clear. Um, there's a fingerprint in a car that doesn't belong to you what's the explanation for that um, so we're talking about a small proportion of cases but we are talking about an increasing proportion because of the sensitivity of our techniques to be able to detect small traces of material and can you give us any examples where think because you know because of biases we've people have made wrong decisions in forensic science there are probably quite a lot, yeah. Um, <laughs> that you can talk at, about? Yeah, look, look at, I mean, the Innocence Project has got a of huge course. number on their website that just really illustrate how, um, whether a belief perseverance or a confirmation bias has led investigators in a particular direction and they've accrued evidence that builds the case that they're looking to build. Um, I think there's a huge number of people out there who are increasingly aware of this and I think there's lots happening in investigative procedures that are aiming to make sure that this is happening you know, much much less than um, maybe it did a few years ago. Um, I'm just trying to think, um, I mean, some of the really famous ones, I mean, Jill Dando's murder, um, very um, the Guildford Four, um, all, I think all of those cases, um, they have, they're either, there was a single piece of evidence that was used, or there was some kind of confirmation bias going on. And how much, I mean, we see confirmation bias as, as a huge driver for, for behaviour and decision making. How much is that one of the big ones within forensic science? It's a huge one. Mm. I think if you 
but it's not a huge one in terms of what's actually going on. So um, in terms of, what, of what's being funded in forensic science, it's all about new tech, new, new capabilities to be able to detect things, to scan things, to create um, digital versions of crime, crime scenes. And that's all really, really useful. It really needs to happen. It's really important. But there has been a complete lack of anyone taking responsibility for this other aspect of forensic science. And as I said in my talk, you know, we've got physical evidence and we've got human decision makers. And we need, therefore, both kinds of research to happen that deal with both. And, and how much has your work kind of challenged some of thinking within behavioural uh, within forensic science? Because it feels like it could kind of blow a lot of questions wide open. It's quite a sensitive topic. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the trail was blazed by one of my colleagues, Dr. Itziel Draw, who back in... 2004-2005 published a series of studies looking at fingerprints and how um, experts could be presented with exactly the same print at different times and come to different conclusions about whether that print was an, 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 an identification um, so, and that that really did blow things up um, there was a big report in 2009 from the US that essentially said hang on a minute there is no scientific evidence base for a huge number of forensic science approaches that are being used in court yeah. that's a problem um, the forensic science regulator in the UK has published a series of reports also saying the same kind of thing. What's so frustrating is it's 2018 yeah, yeah. and we're still not at a point where this is routinely incorporated into our methods and our practices and we're not making sure that the evidence base is there by ensuring that the research is happening. So I think it's, it, is, it is potentially explosive and there's a lot of sensitivity around it. But I'm very much of the opinion it's much better to know the problems that you've got and to create yeah, approaches yeah. that can yeah. you know, mitigate the issues and also be transparent about where there are uncertainties. In science, we're always going to have uncertainty. Yeah. So just being transparent about where that, un that uncertainty is and being able to more clearly explain how we understand what we're seeing is going to be a good thing. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, which you might get a lot, but I'm going to say it anyway. Have you seen Megan a murderer? <laughs> <laughs> haven't yet right I know I've heard have people asked you about oh, this and it's a fast I mean it's, it's it's one of those things that I haven't done it yet because I want to do it properly yeah. and I want to have I want to look at watch it in one big go so I can see it but exactly I think that's one of the issues that um, encapsulates so many of the problems that we're facing and in such a very very real and tangible way yeah cool <laughs> amazing right well I'm gonna try and not have nightmares it was amazing to speak to you I'll let you get back thank you very much thank, thank you, you. thank you so I'm with John Kay, we've just stepped outside after uh, his speech and I have just explained to him that I didn't understand all of it but I found it extremely entertaining. Um, the first question I asked when we were walking out was the place of rational economic theory within behavioural science. Can you see how you see that at the moment? Yeah, I'm, I'm a pluralist. I, I believe in using lots of models and finding the appropriate model for the particular problem or group of problems you're dealing with. And for example, models of rationality are are much better in explaining repetitive consumer behaviour, how, how people make their small everyday purchases every week. It is explaining how people make big decisions under uncertainty, which is really what I was talking about in there. You have to adapt your technique to the problem. That's really interesting. It's almost like um, not all models are perfect, but some are useful. Exactly. That's a very good remark, and it's, it's one that a lot more economists should bear in mind. A lot of economists, I'm afraid, think what you're trying to do is construct uh, a kind of model of everything, you know, something that yeah, describes yeah, the yeah, world as yeah. it really is. And there isn't going to be one model that describes human behaviour. That's uh, Shimura. 
And is that just because we're messy in decision? The whole thing's messy and people just like to put things in easy boxes, easy formulas? Uh, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it as being messy, really. Uh, and we raise the question, how is it that... Uh, I, I like the story that NASA launched a spacecraft to orbit Mercury. Yeah. And it took seven years to reach there. Uh, went round the Earth once, Venus twice, Mercury three times, and ended up after seven years in almost exactly the position they'd <laughs> planned it to be. How can they do that? Yeah. Well, they can do it because, firstly, we, uh, we understand the equations of the solar system. Yeah. Secondly, they're unchanged. They're what yeah. uh, Copernicus and Galileo discovered yeah. centuries ago. And thirdly, uh, their behavior isn't very much affected by what we do. And none of these things are true in the kind of problems we face in business and finance. I mean, that's the thing that we constantly discuss is that context is king and context is a huge driver. Yeah, and my, I use the bird in the, the hand example, amazing. which is, we'll try and post uh, that uh, right, which is an obvious, yeah. uh, it's the context that gives the meaning. Uh, and we all know that there are sentences, uh, you know, he went to the bank means something very different if you're a criminal than if you're a fisherman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, was, there was one term that I picked up which was collective Russian... Uh, collective intelligence. Right, okay. Which is to say we know a lot more as groups uh, than we know as individuals. And my example, just to illustrate the point, is nobody, literally no person, knows how to build an Airbus. Mm. But collectively we do. And that's just the most complicated, or one of the most complicated yeah. products we make in that kind of way. But this thing happens all the time. And it's how we are able, it's essentially the central fact of economics. It's how we're able to do these quite extraordinary things, have long, complicated supply chains, build extremely elaborate artifacts, and so on. John, I think I'm beginning to understand it a lot better. Is there anywhere where like, our readers can find your stuff or more of your work? Uh, yeah, all right. Uh, my, my last book is Other People's Money, which isn't terribly relevant <laughs> to all of this. They go back to obliquity. Uh, which Rory loves, yeah, he's yeah. told me to read that. Uh, yeah, Rory's told you to read that. And actually coming out, I hope, next year uh, will be a book called Radical Uncertainty, which will be on the subject of how we make decisions in a complex, uncertain world we don't properly understand. Well, John, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. So I have got Case, and I got that right, and Johan from Booking.com. Can you just tell, so people who didn't see your talk, can you just tell people about it? Yeah, so I think what Johan and I talked about uh, today at Nutstock is um, how you can apply behavioral science at Booking.com for the sake of helping a user uh, to find uh, what they want and find what they what they are coming to do on a website, which is mainly booking accommodation and experience a great trip. So uh, we want to empower people to experience the world and um, we are uh, today talked about um, like, like we have uh, dozens of teams that work on usability, um, usability aspect on how to make it for you easy to book but also um, Johan and I are more on the motivational part so how can we uh, trigger uh, some of your motivation, how can we trigger behavior um, by helping you and one of the things that we talked about is like how can we use social proof on our website how can we use similarity how can we use scarcity and actually why is this important to users uh, which you all talked about in that that people behave rational 
uh, and also like more emotional and also more intuitive. So uh, we want to both uh, serve both groups actually. Great. And Johan, do you guys start with, I mean, you might not have a process for it, but do you guys start with what the behavioral literature says and then you work the interventions out of that? Or is it more of a creative process and then you post-rationalize the, and is it all, are you always testing the behavioral principle, the bias, the heuristic? We start with what the customer wants, what the customer tells us, right? Nice. So we have the benefit on our side to have, um, as you would have seen, like 10 millions of uh, users coming to our site per day. So we get to experiment, A-B test and learn uh, with a lot of statistic, statistical significance uh, what uh, matters to our users and we learn that very quickly. And depending on, yeah, so we, we get ideas absolutely from, um, from books and uh, psychology um, texts and, and so on. Um, but I think it's, it comes down to what the customer says because um, we build our products towards like an outcome, right? So we uh, it's like, hey, we, we come up with a problem. It's like, hey, what's the problem the customer has yeah. that prevents them from getting to what they want? And then we develop um, a product or a feature that will help them solve that problem. And um, as I touched on earlier, uh, one of the things that we need to consider is also helping them to, like, get convinced to actually use it. So if we develop a new comparison feature, um, it could be a wish list or something like that, we need to be able to convince users to actually use that feature and understand what its value is. And that's where we can use like, you know, some um, things like social proof, authority, scarcity, like, things like, hey, this is the number one used feature on our site, brand new, um, check it out. And uh, these, it's more about yeah, the application yeah. and use of what we are building. At the end of the day, we're still product developers. Yeah. So, Great. One of the kind of hot topics in applied behavioral psychology at the moment is, do some nudges have a bit of a shelf life? Do their effectiveness wear off when people start to see them? Who wants to take that <laughs> meaty question? Uh, you mean if Case? it's like, uh, uh, if I refresh, if I... Uh, I repeat your question in a bit. Are, are you referring more to like, does it have a short-term effect or long-term effect? Or well, if if people start to see, oh, I know now that they're like, you know, three seats remaining or four rooms remaining at this price. Do, do you think that that becomes less effective because they're used to the application? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. I see. Oh, wants to jump in here. No, no, absolutely. So I think there's some, um, I, you know, we've. I'd like to think uh, Booking.com, I mean, before, even before I started working here, I've been kind of one of the front runners in terms of uh, using psychology in this yeah, way yeah, yeah. Um, in e-commerce anyway, right? So, um, so absolutely. So I think with more and more people, uh, more and more companies out there that are adopting these techniques, like the number of rooms, um, number of seats left on a flight, yeah. on a train, or uh, how many other people are booking, how many seats are left, and those kind of things. Um, yeah, so the power is wearing off because it's, people are seeing these kind of messages more yeah. and more. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean we have to think of n new ways of convincing them. I think it's, I think it, fundamentally, if we develop an, a good feature that solves a user problem, yeah. then the, the convincing part is, is, takes less effort. So we don't need as many of these messages that come in from everywhere and, 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 yeah. and push people to do things. So um, if I can answer it correctly, in terms of like the, probably the message that's kind of lost some of its effect, the most would it be how many people are booking I, I don't know yeah. what would be the I can't think of one particular message I think um, I think also what we try to do is is um, we really have an experimentation culture so we start from the problem and we define a problem and then we we start with having a hypothesis like by doing X 
can lead to I, and then we try that we, uh, and then we see in an experiment in A/B test that we do to see if we solved this specific problem. Uh, uh, for example, by seeing if people booked more holidays that they are happy with. Um, we do this like also in retrospect, in the sense that if today we have a success uh, in saying how many people are looking at a specific property and, and we see that this helps people actually booking these properties um, and have a great experience afterwards with this, in this property, um, that doesn't mean that this will stay forever on our website. We will try to evaluate this and, and maybe next year or maybe next month, right, there is an hypothesis that this yeah. might be for either all users or for a specific segment of user might be not helping at all and we instead of um, how many people are looking at this property we might can better say how many people from um, uh, from a specific area rated this higher than an eighth right uh, I mean yeah, yeah. so 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 these are it's continually co continuous improvement and, and, tweaking, and current, yeah. tweaking and currently learning uh, building measuring uh, and then learning building measuring and, wow. and, and kind of this lean startup way of working that we're doing and how much do you put on the kind of power of creativity in solving that so you know the kind of so there's the behavioral science but the execution of that is sometimes down to the creative way you can solve that problem yeah that's uh that's a great great question um also like how can we help with this idea so yes yeah, so we read some books we are like just biased in a sense that we are very uh enthusiastic about behavioral science but it's like everyone in the team uh, in the product teams, like they are very autonomous, so they are very empowered to come up with the ideas. And a designer might have a very good idea, or a, a front-end developer that writes the code might have a, have a very good idea. And uh, every idea is kind of equal to each other. It's more like who can create the best hypothesis with the best preliminary data yeah. uh, behind it yeah. is, is, is the, the, the ideas that going to test first. So um, yeah, our job is actually to not come up with these ideas, but mm. to prioritize these uh, these ideas as how they can solve these uh, problems that we define up front yeah. and um, all this input comes from the whole organization uh, comes from from the team specifically can even come from our competitors right can yeah, even, yeah, can, yeah. can even yeah. come from uh, other industries Different categories yeah. yes yeah. so um, no it's not that 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 we are bouncing balls to a wall and then yeah, just yeah. came up with with creative ideas yeah, yeah. there's part of it but we try to empower everyone uh, to come up with this. Yeah. And we, we always consider, as product owners anyway, um, always new ways of working, new new ways of solving problems. Um, and then we, the way we prioritize the best ideas is like, okay, which has the most sense, which will be most impactful for the customer and the business. I mean, fundamentally, they're the questions that we want to answer, but we always look at fresh ways, always and open to fresh ways of uh, solving those problems. Great. Stay curious, test and build. Yes, That's the key. Exactly. Right, well, lunch has just been served. Yeah. So right. I will let you go. Thank you so much for your talk. It's really appreciate yeah, it. Right. Yeah, speak soon. Sure. Thank you. Bye. Right. So that's lunch. Um, amazing to talk to the booking.com team. Uh, well, these volivants aren't going to eat themselves. I'll see if I can grab some people uh, in the lunch queue and see if we can speak to some more people. So I have grabbed two people from the lunch queue and pulled them out. So this will be very short because people are getting hungry. Um, first of all, can you just say uh, who you are, where you come from, and why Nudgestock? My name is Leah. I work for RAP, Waste Resource, and Resource Action Plan. And, and I'm here at Nudgestock because I love listening to the behavioural psychologists and how we can um, apply that to what we do. And hello. 
Hi, I'm Sarah, I'm also from RAP and I'm here today because we've been working on a lot of projects that are related to behavioural economics and kind of achieving behaviour change. I'm also a sociologist by training so I came to listen to some inspiring speeches, Rory being one of them. We hope that bringing people from kind of different ways of thinking will help people solve problems in other areas. Is there anything from today that you've already taken away? Yeah, I thought John Kay was, was brilliant the way that we're social animals and that we should so, solve our pro problems socially rather than breaking them down individually. And I guess that's what we're trying to do at RAP is, is solve this food waste issue. You know, we can't do it on our own. We've got to get everybody to do it. Great. Sarah? For me, it was really about thinking outside the box. So what Michael was talking about in the bio, biology and thinking about how that can help us solve other problems, not just from an architecture point of view, but just thinking outside the box for our kind of issues. So yeah, that was really cool for me. Behavioural psychology yeah. is starting to kind of permeate through organisations more. How have you found it introducing it into your organisation? I think that's a, that's a really good question because I, I'm thinking about that rational way of... of solving a problem by isolating it in bits and trying to solve each bit on its own. But this behavioural psychology and behavioural economics looks at the bigger picture and let's look at how we can look at that to solve um, and the irrational problem of food waste and why everybody does it individually and bring it together collectively to try and solve that. Amazing. That sounds amazing. Sarah? Um, in terms of our organisation, like we're got some really bright people on board so I think when you start to explain it it kind of automatically fits for people I think the challenge is actually getting it out there and doing and actually applying it and that is always the challenge for us which we are hoping to overcome but um, yeah I think that's the kind of main thing for us thank you so much guys of course you can could you eat your leftovers please <laughs> we will leave you on that right thank you team and if you don't recycle them at least <laughs> <laughs> amazing right you can go and try and get your place back in the queue thank you guys thank you if you could just introduce who you are your name um company you work for sure evan nestrak behavioral scientist uh, magazine editor-in-chief fantastic uh, have you been to nudge Talk before this first time first time to nudge Talk, first time to focus <laughs> Excellent. Uh, what do you think so far, the day so far, the first half? Uh, it's been great. It was kicked off with the electric guitar and uh, everything has been, been rock and roll since. Uh, really enjoyed the variety of the speakers and uh, Rory does a great job of, of being hilarious and at the same time teaching, teaching, um, and, and teaching the audience and I also think get, getting people to think uh, outside of uh, their normal patterns. So. Uh, and has there been a key sort of speaker, uh, most interesting thing you've learned so far? I really enjoyed uh, the biomimicry uh, and the, the idea of how can we bring biology um, into design and the, the drawings and the architecture that, that uh, Michael Pollan showed were, were just fascinating and that's, that's one area where I, I just definitely want to keep learning more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyone you're most excited about this afternoon? Anything you've looking forward to the most? So I'm, I'm, uh, I love network science. I'm really intrigued to hear Nicholas Christakis speak. And uh, I, I think, you know, some of the network science methodologies are going to really take behavioral science to the next level over the next uh, next few years. And, uh, and I, I'm excited to, to hear what he has to say. Uh, anything that you've learned this, this morning that you would sort of recommend to someone else or to another business? Um, something that you would share hmm, let me think. that you've heard today? Um, 
I'm not a marketer, so but his idea of how a marketer might look at a, an illogical um, answer and see you know maybe an opportunity or see something um, something to learn there, whereas a, a scientist might consider that you know a dead end, right? So this kind of balance between um, how do we understand and think about what we're doing in terms of universal truths or just trying to understand and see patterns. And I think I think that's a really interesting kind of debate and conversation to be had. And I'm excited to hear if anyone else references it and, and kind of hear how that conversation develops. Evan, thank you very much. Brilliant. So I've managed to pull someone else out of the lunch queue. Um, can I just ask your name, the organization you're from, and why Nordstock? Uh, Rian Gladman, I'm a programme manager at the Local Government Association. Uh, we represent councils across the country and I'm here at Nudgestock really to just for some new learning and to, to meet different people working on behavioural insights problems and take that learning back to our councils who are really dealing with some of society's biggest challenges and need some fresh thinking to help them with that and that's my job really. Wow, and what stage is behavioural science at currently in? kind of local government and councils at the moment in terms of how people are adopting it and adapting it? So councils, a lot of councils have done behavioural insights work around their council tax bills um, to encourage you know, those to be easier to read and easier for residents to actually understand what they need to do and how they need to pay uh, their council tax and make that easy to do. And now we're seeing them actually move into much more um, difficult, more complex areas. So we're working with councils um, around public health challenges. How can we encourage people to take more exercise and to drink less sugary drinks and eat less sugary snacks and um, we're also looking around um, how can we help councils to get more of their you know adult social care charges paid for as well by, by local residents um, and just yeah it's really starting to take off I must admit but you know it's very complex challenging work and it's just good to really you know work with other interesting organizations and is there anything that you've taken away from today already I know the I know there's so much kind of diverse thinking Loads of stuff, loads of stuff. I was really interested to hear um, a council case study used, actually, Odeby and Wigston, around the uh, the bill posting for, for gigs and yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. and rather than all the money you know being taken away. And similar things around graffiti have been done with by councils yeah. as well, actually commissioning local street artists to do um, you know that, that kind of more professional sort of street art uh, actually really improves the local realm and, and rather than you know having to pay money to take it off. Uh, I thought that's a really good example. So um, yeah, excellent. Thanks so much for your time. Have a great rest of Nudgestock. Thank you very much. Ciao. Okay, so I'm with <laughs> Caroline Webb outside, and it has gone a little bit windy. Um, and Caroline's talk was called Nudge Thyself. Caroline, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Well, I've always been interested in the use of behavioural science to make the world a better place. And early stages in my career, that was very much about uh, how do you create uh, positive change in countries, in uh, whole organizations and over the time my interest got more and more focused on individuals and teams and how we can use behavioral economics, behavioral neuroscience, behavioral psychology to actually improve our own effectiveness and our own well-being and that's really you know where the idea of nudge thyself came from because so much of what's out there that people in uh, nudge stock are using for their clients uh, they could be using for themselves to improve their own effectiveness their own productivity their own performance and so on so that's uh, that's the work that i do i think it's fascinating i think there's such an opportunity to to be at our best more often if we 
actually apply the research to ourselves. Yeah, the thing I, I think I took away from it was sometimes it's not the things that happen to you, it's how you react to them. And are the kind of are the built-in things that you kind of go, okay, I know this is happening, but I also know that there's techniques and rules that can help me overcome it, or at least maybe take back control a little bit of the situation that's so it's exactly right you know sometimes people ask me to summarize my book in one sentence and you know i read a book called how to have a good day and really it is that is the fact that we have a bit more control than we think we have and you know in some ways that doesn't sound like a very dramatic message uh it is true that you know there is bad luck and there are bad days and terrible things do happen but it's all about the question of understanding the control you have over the style of your response and the impact that that can have and you know that can be tiny interventions like recognizing the effects of confirmation bias and the fact that as you're going into a conversation with someone maybe you're not looking forward to the conversation knowing that if you're expecting them to be a complete tool (laughs) or a complete jerk whatever word you want um, you are going to look for evidence that confirms your assumptions and you might miss the one moment where they're a bit more helpful, they're a bit more friendly, they're a bit uh, more conciliatory. And it's not to say that you know, they're not a difficult person. You know, I'm not wishing away the fact that there are lots of challenges that we face. But if you understand that your mental state as you go into a conversation is gonna shape what you perceive, you can be more deliberate about saying, okay, I understand this person's difficult, but maybe what I'm gonna make sure is top of mind is I'm gonna look out for opportunities for, to collaborate. And you're magically more likely to see them if you have decided that that's what you're looking out for. That's so interesting. I think when you said there about, it's about your perception of that situation that kind of frames your reality of it. Is there any times where you kind of go, yeah, I'm going into a certain area now. Let's kick in with some of these things. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I use, I do genuinely use all of this stuff on myself every day. Uh, and. Um, you know, I'm always looking for the tiny interventions that you can use that are so easy to build into to everyday life. So, you know, I do every time I go into a meeting, uh, every time I you know, go into a call that matters, I take the 10 seconds before to say, OK, what aim do I really want to have top of mind? Knowing that that's going to filter what I'm actually able to perceive because of inattentional blindness, because of confirmation yeah, bias. Yeah. And, you know, it really just is about being a tiny bit more deliberate and recognizing that in 10 seconds you can actually change your experience of the call or the meeting you're about to have. Great. And is it where can we find kind of your books or more information? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, how can I have a better life? <laughs> because of you (laughs) well that's a lovely question um well uh i have a website which is carolineweb.co not dot com uh actually it turns out there are many many caroline webs in the the world the (laughs) emisol last year that's right that's right so carolineweb.co there's a ton of stuff on that lots of articles podcasts lovely podcasts like this Mm. and um and there's also information about my book which uh is in a number of different editions around the world including in the UK so uh, that that might be the the way to, to follow up if you're interested in what you've been hearing me say amazing well Nicholas Christakis has just been talking and blowing our collective minds I think so <laughs> let's go and try and find him again thank you Fantastic. very much thank you thank Bye. You. so I'm here with Nicholas Christakis who has just blown my mind with his talk because essentially it was 30 years worth of work in what 30 minutes yeah 20 years of work in 35 minutes yeah and what i'm going to ask you to do now is can we reduce that to five minutes to do all your work i mean can you just give us a, a like a brief like how you came to do the talk well i think uh, ju- i'd start by just in cultivating in in uh, in your listeners a certain intuition so think about uh, carbon you think about carbon atoms, uh, you can connect them one way, as we all learned in high school chemistry. You can connect them one way and you get graphite, which is soft and dark. 
Or you take the very same carbon atoms and you connect them a different way, a different pattern of connections, and you get diamond, which is hard and clear. And there are two key intellectual ideas there. First of all, these properties of softness and darkness and hardness and clearness are not properties of the carbon atoms. They're properties of the collection of carbon atoms. Yeah. And second, how you connect the carbon atoms to each other um, determines which properties you get. And it's the same with human social groups. You can take a group of people and connect them one way, and they're very nice to each other, and they share information, and uh, they're kind to each other, uh, and they're productive and innovative and healthy and happy. Or you take the same people and connect them a different way, and they have none of those properties. So this says that there's something about social networks that's really important in our lives. It's not just who you are. It's how we've assembled ourselves into networks that has so many implications for not just whether you become sick with a germ, but whether you find a partner that you love through your friend's friend's friend, or uh, whether you become happy or sad, or whether your group is a nice group or a, or a bad group. It depends a lot on the structure and function of our networks. And that's really interesting, because we talk a lot of the time about context, how context influences decision making. And I suppose it's really interesting, because actually, the networks and the reactions of people within your networks will define the context that you create. Yes, well, one of the interesting things is, is that th the networks create you and you create the network. Mm. So they go back and forth. And so some of our work has looked at the evolutionary biology and the genetics of friendship. You know, why do some people want many friends and some want few? If you and I both want the same number of friends, why do you pick certain individuals and I pick other individuals as my yeah. friends? Uh, and, and conversely, the networks which we create, but which also are thrust upon us, then shape our own experience. So it's a rather complicated way in which we, you see, we, we humans don't just live in groups like stampeding buffaloes, yeah, we live yeah. in networks. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you said within the first three or four minutes, which I absolutely loved, and i not really heard this said before, was we weren't interested about the people we were affecting or the people we were trying to affect. We were interested in about the people we weren't affecting. Yes. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because, that, I mean, has that been something that's been brought up before? Because I, I absolutely love that as a kind of, well, as an approach. Well, the idea is that, you know, you can go into, a, we work in the developing world setting, so you can go into a village in Uganda or India or Honduras where we've done most of our work. And, uh, you know, let's say there are a thousand people in the village and you pick a hundred of them to get some intervention, a clean water intervention or a maternal and child health intervention. And the usual perspective is to go back a year later and see how many of those hundred people responded to your intervention. But actually there's a more subtle and more important, I think, way of thinking about that, which is not what do those hundred people to whom we give the intervention do, but what does everyone else in the village do yeah, when you yeah, give those 100 yeah. people the intervention? Because maybe 50 of the 100 people you intervened on adopted the practice you taught them, but maybe they persuaded 200 of their friends. So actually you affected 250 people in the village. Having thought, you only affected 50. But to see that, you have to look at everybody. Mm -hmm. You can't just look at the 100 you've treated. You've got to track the whole 1,000 yeah. to measure these spillover effects and see how they work. And do you think this could be a new way that we start to look at when we're trying to address like big problems like health en masse that you know the 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 one person that you affect has the knock-on effect on yes. the bigger group yes of course I mean we think that there are ways to uh, exploit these network effects um, see here's the thing everyone has the sense that or they recognize that you know that you're affected by your peers you know why do you start smoking my friend started smoking why yeah, did you yeah, buy a yeah. yeah why'd you buy an iPhone my friends bought an iPhone yeah. so we under everyone has this understanding but what's interesting is that actually the, the the effect doesn't stop at one degree of separation 
we are not just affected by, nor do we affect those people to whom we're directly connected. We also, through the network, have these indirect effects, such that your friend's friend's friend can affect you and you can affect them. So what this means is that as you begin to look seriously at these effects, it gives you new tools to intervene in the world to make it better, to improve our health, our wealth, our security, and yeah. our civic life. And just within that, do you think that they that the certain people that could optimize their effects so some people may be more effective than others in creating yes. kind of yeah to create these spillover effects yeah. what we've been looking at is not on who you are but rather on where you are in the social fabric so what we're interested in is not conventional ways of identifying influential people you know who's rich or yeah. who's attractive for instance we're interested in identifying who by virtue of where they're located in the social graph can create more of these knock-on effects. And we've been able to use a variety of methods to find evidence for that ability. That's amazing. Um, just for our listeners, where can we find out more about this? Because it's really interesting. So uh, you, for the science of this, you can go to my lab website, which is one word, humannaturelab.net. So that's humannaturelab.net. And, uh, and there you'll find lots of videos. You can download all our papers. If you look around, you'll see some TED Talks that I've given and also some other talks that I've given that might be of interest to you. And we've got your book here, I think, today, and people are queuing up for it, apparently, because we had a message before saying we've run out of cash at the store because everyone wants to buy Nicholas' book. So thank you very much, and thank thanks you. for your yes, time. Yes, I have a book called Connected, um, and uh, the, the book is called Connected, but I have a new book that's coming out in about nine months called Blueprint, uh, the Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. That sounds amazing. Thank you very much for your time. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. So I'm with Mark Brooks now, and Mark's talk was on internet dating. Um, Mark, do you, do you find that a lot of people come to you for dating advice? I do, yeah. I didn't actually meet my wife through internet dating, I should say. I'm not, I'm not even a big fan. I just see You're not a brand a, champion. <laughs> well, not really. I think there's lots of room for improvement. It's uh, a virgin industry still. Even though we're 20 years in, yeah. I think we've got a lot, lot, long way to go. But if I was to give advice on dating, um, there are so many dating apps and services. One of the key things is going to one that actually has people on it. So there's lots of niche dating apps. Yeah. Just make sure they've got enough people to satiate you, that you've got enough choice. Um, and you talked a lot about applied behavioral understanding, beha uh, behavioral insights. How, how much have you found that has been starting to permeate through in terms of, I suppose, the app design, but then if, like, the things that people can do to kind of nudge people <laughs> into preferred partners? Well, look, we've been doing testing for years. I mean, every digital app service on, in, on the planet, if they've got their head screwed on, is doing a copious amount of testing in the form of A-B tests. So that's the, you know, RC test, essentially. Um, so any app that's worth its you know, salt is doing 50, 100, 200 tests at any one time. Um, what this adds is a framework, a, a language, a reason for understanding why people do what they do. I mean, we make, we've made these obser observations for years. It's like, okay, we've optimized for conversion, we've optimized for retention, um, but we don't know why. Yeah. And this gives us some understanding of why people do what they do. Yeah, because we, we sometimes saw that data gives us the what, and um, we as behavioral scientists apply the why, or we kind of explain the why. How much does that tap into what the algorithms are doing as well in terms of what your kind of what I suppose what the kind of content that you're served yeah well that's really key because right now we're optimizing for conversions and retention 
And so it's in the public interest, in the social interest, that we optimise for the best possible relationships. And we just don't have that visibility because we can't really complete that feedback loop. If someone doesn't, if someone's done with a dating app, they delete it. Um, that doesn't tell us that much. It could be that they're in a relationship. It could be that they're not. Um, it could be we've done a good job. It could be we've done a very bad job. So that is a that's our major challenge, and that's the challenge for the industry. We can't optimize algorithms for long-term relationships if we don't know if we've been successful. We can see if we've been successful with lengthening the time on the app, and if we've you know kept them around and converted them initially. That's that's what we can do a very good job on. <laughs> but yeah. we've got room for improvement. <laughs> Well, it's really interesting customer journey. It's like a customer journey like no other, I, I, I imagine. You make the customer happy. See you later, you don't see them again. Um, how much is kind of maybe for people listening to this, can they go, so what can I do as a user to improve my chances on kind of dating apps? Don't be boring. Don't be generic. Be specific about things that you like to do. You know, your, your profile has to stand out. There's a lot of competition. So if you're going to take a, have photographs on there, which you should, um, just make sure there's, there's quite a few hacks, actually, when it comes to photographs. Um, and, and they're not necessarily, they're actually female or male-centric sometimes. So um, a guy can have a dog, and that's good. A woman yeah. can't have a dog. That's not good. That's <laughs> so, so interesting. Um, men will get more attention if they've got, got, got their pet in the picture, but women will get less. Wow. And with that, do you kind of post-rationalise any of the psychology of that? I mean, we could just invent a new effect now, the, the man with the dog effect. Right, exactly. <laughs> we could write a paper on this. Well, as, as my professor Paul Dolan kept hammering into us, uh, yeah. yeah, LSE, went yeah. to LSE. Uh, he just uh, got to a, become a, a point of fun, really, because every lecture is a context matters. Nowhere more so than internet dating. And there are so many contexts within that, so many yeah. lifestyles, cultures, niches that we have to deal with. There are many, many contexts. And so optimizing around those for, for uh, something other than just conversion through attention yeah. is a challenge. Contexts that you can and can't control. One of the things you mentioned towards the end was um, Facebook coming into the space, yeah. which is really interesting. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So Facebook, actually Mark Zuckerberg, no less, announced that they're getting into dating, which was uh, one of those things that we might have expected a few years back, but it was a bit of a surprise. No one saw it quite on, on, on the cards right now. Um, they can solve the feedback problem that we have. They, they know when people have met, uh, who they've met, and how long those relationships last. They've got the perfect information to know if they've been successful and how to tweak the algorithm for longer-term relationships, which is ultimately the, the, the ultimate utility of any dating app. Well, thanks very much for your time, Mark. Really, okay. really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, so I have managed to track down um, the Behavioural Strategy Director at Ogilvy, Sam Tatum, a.k.a. my boss. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Mark. I mean, it's so exciting, hey? Like, it's lovely. From a personal perspective, from a team perspective, I think we put a lot of work into this. Um, so thrilled. Um, with the turnout, thrilled with the speakers, and always thrilled with the, when when the weather makes it makes it shine. Yeah. Um, but I think what's uh, in speaking to people in in the breaks, I think what's been sort of reinforced for us, and is why we should continue to do what we're doing, um, is the diversity of the speakers that we've been able to get this year. Um, from from our, our, our rock stars, our sort of our, our hardcore acad academic um, partners, um, to to people applying it from from booking. Com to all the way through to, to, to matchmaking online. So it's um, lovely to have the diversity um, 
shown here today and I think people get a lot from that. I think the thing that like we found is is when we've been kind of jumping in and, and just kind of asking people, so what is it? The thing that is so interesting is like it's a new way of thinking about something. Not this is gonna solve a specific problem for yes. us, but the investing in we need to look at problems in different ways. Yeah, and I think that's what's certainly interesting for our clients and um, when you look at a category you might see yourself in the airline industry or in the tech industry or in the, you're a sort of a pharmaceutical company or, or fast-moving consumer goods um, and what's really lovely about today is that it's focused that every every presentation every speech uh, has people at the center of it yeah uh, if it's um, if we're talking forensic science all the way to, to better understanding that sort of uh, the, the, and calculating social movements on mass all the way down to whether we swipe left or right, right? Like this, this is all with people at, at its very core. So by shining a new light on how people behave, think and, and act, um, we can then stretch those insights to any, to any category um, if you're faced with the same challenge. So um, for me, that's hugely important. The one thing as well that's come up is that it feels like now isn't, no longer do people think that it's something that they really have to fight for to push through into some of their organisations, yeah. that it's becoming an accepted way. Behavioural science is an accepted way of looking at challenges. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, certainly from coming from our, our business, I mean, within Ogilvy, we've often talked for a while, it's a, it's a bit of a double sell. Yeah. You need to convince people of, of the industry yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the science. <laughs> and, then, and, then after, and, then, and then hopefully that we've got a solution. Um, so it can be a triple sell, a triple sell on occasion, but I think um, certainly it's uh, this, this, this thinking has been around for a while and I think in, in, intuitively people get it. Um, uh, but also, I mean, a, a second Nobel Prize never helps also to yeah, get it back yeah. on the map and reinforce its credibility with Richard Thaler uh, earlier this year. Um, so I, I, I do think it's um, where we're in mainstream now, um, which is great because I think for us certainly in, in seeing how people are experimenting, applying, learning and failing, um, being mainstream can only help us progress um, the discipline further and I think um, being able to quantify uh, its effectiveness positively or negatively, that's what people are seeking. And next year? Next year, well, there's, the rumours are out. <laughs> yeah. Next year, whether we're staying in Folkestone or, or Eastbourne has been mentioned. Yeah. Coast, coastal towns seem We've important. We've got to keep it. Coastal. There is, let's start the rumour of a big top somewhere in Eastbourne. That's certainly <laughs> yeah. the, the, the rumours around camp. Uh, but we'll be back for 2019. That will be nudge stock number seven. Uh, we hope we can live up to, 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 the, to the sort of the six years prior. Um, but really looking forward to it. Well, these G&Ts won't drink themselves, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> well, they won't. Thank you for your Mate, time. Thank you so thank much, you. Okay, so I've got Don Marty with me. I loved how you were questioning um, targeted advertising because that's the first time I've really seen it on with the kind of data and the kind of the arguments backed up. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, a lot of the marketing literature calls targeted advertising into question. So if you go back and look at studies that people have done, there are really three kinds of literature that support the signaling model. There's pure mathematical models, there's user research on captive groups of users, and then there's market data. And really, um, a lot of this information is kind of behind paywalls or had been done uh, on previous generations of media, yeah. but a lot of it is still relevant. 
It's interesting that were we sold it as an opportunity or are we just seeing now the kind of the issues with it? I think you really have to look at the incentives. Um, most of the advocacy for targeted advertising is driven by ad tech intermediaries who are capturing a greater and greater share of ad revenue away from the publishers. So the classic advertising model is 85% to the publisher, 15% to the agency. Today, it can be as little as 7% to the publisher. 30 to 40% is considered good. Wow. And what are the kind of the, the more top-level behavioral reasons for some of this? So Rory just mentioned trust. That's one signaling that, that these things that we, that clearly we've just only, well, probably not only now, but we can now frame them and go in, this is the psychological problem. This is why it doesn't work. Yeah. And um, David Ogilvy back in the day said, the customer is not a moron. And the customer is also not a game piece in a targeted advertising game. The customer is very much an active player. And they will choose and control their media environment to um, expose themselves to messages that they think are valuable. Now, if you look at The Economist magazine, there's no offer to buy the printed Economist, but without the ads. That's because people who buy an ad in the print economist are clearly sending a signal, whether it's a high-end watch or Oracle database or some other luxury good. They want you to know how much they spent on an ad that reaches an entire audience. They want you to know that they're not just picking you out because they believe you're um, likely to buy their thing. Do you think this has wider implications for free content? Because free top content, you get a lot of kind of low level targeted ads. Obviously, if we're questioning some of this and that goes away, like, do you think there's further inf implications with like your thinking and your approach? One of the biggest examples of free content has been the broadcast television model. And clearly that has extremely high cost, high production values. And what is it about that model that lacks targeting, doesn't have to charge the user, but still produces some cultural works that people will, people consider valuable enough to buy on DVD and binge watch. I mean, that's really interesting because essentially as some of these kind of, let's call them media agencies because that's what they are, kind of social networks, they're coming into the realm of kind of longer content. I think Facebook's launching Facebook TV. Facebook TV's launched in the US, hasn't it? Yeah, and Facebook has the um, characteristic of, of branding themselves as knowing everything about everybody. And so if you see an ad on Facebook, you can be pretty clear that that ad is targeted to you much as a cold call might be targeted to you. And just by the fact that your 
already aware that that message is specifically to you, then that message, that, that ad is not carrying as much information about that seller's intention in the market. And do you think there's a paradox that when companies like Facebook need to address a big issue, they'll do it through the printed media? Like when, when we, there was the kind of the data sharing scandal, Mark Zuckerberg wrote a letter, put it in all the national press. Absolutely, it's, it's, cred it's more credible if you do it in a way that reaches everyone and is impossible to, effectively impossible to repudiate. Another interesting thing to look at is what happens when a company like Google with Nest or Facebook with Oculus actually sells their own end user facing brand. Yeah. Look where Oculus or Nest show up in, um, look at where Oculus and Nest ads show up and compare them to the kind of ads that Facebook and Google want to get other companies to buy. There's talk as well that there might be opportunities for TV to start to kind of go into the targeting ad market. What, what are your thoughts around that? I'm really looking forward to that because it's going to be a great natural experiment. As people realize that their TV ads are being targeted to them the same way that their web ads are, uh, is commercial skipping going to go up? I know there was a lot of concern about the TiVo effect, about people just tuning into their show, putting it on pause for 20 minutes, and then skipping all the commercials. Yeah. Uh, but the TiVo effect has not been as, as big of an impact as, as people thought it would be. Now that targeted TV commercials are starting to appear, are we going to see more skipping, more pirating, more other ways of avoiding those commercials as people realize the signal isn't there. And, and do you think that when people feel they're being targeted, that's just, uh, that, you know, that's, the, that's an instant re uh, rejection to it? I don't think anyone has the time to do instant and total rejection of everything. Yeah. If I wanted to have a perfect uh, media watching experience, it would take me more time to filter all my spam, filter all my Twitter ads, yeah. filter out all my YouTube ads. It would take me more time to do that than mm -hmm. to actually uh, enjoy the the news and the cultural works that I want. So everyone has a point at which they feel that a particular kind of ad is not pulling its weight, it's not carrying its side of the signal for attention bargain, and they're going to put in the time to ignore it, block it, or regulate it. Is there a slight paradox that with TV, the production values are higher than creating a banner ad? So therefore, there's a little bit more skin in the game for targeted TV ads? Maybe, but I still think that natural experiment's gonna be fun to watch. Yeah, that is so interesting. Is there anywhere else we can find kind of your research and your thinking on this? I have a blog, you can follow me on Twitter at dmarty. Um, it'll have a link to my other stuff. Amazing, thank you so much for closing Nudge Talk as well, and hopefully you're gonna stick around a bit. It's really nice to talk to you. Thank you, Don. So I've finally, finally tracked him down. The greatest mind in behavioral science. He's now interviewing Mr. Rory Sutherland. <laughs> <laughs> Here he is, Rory. Like, what are you feeling? We're, we're at the end now. Uh, exhausted, but very, very rewarded. It was fantastic. I mean, it was uh, 
I, I thought what we got was incredibly important is actually the pacing of the whole thing. And the mix of speakers and the order of the speakers couldn't have worked any better. Uh, I'd just like to voice absolute thanks to every single person who spoke, because I thought yeah. every single talk was tremendous. And um, uh, what, what it also managed to capture is a really good mixture of kind of theory and practice. So in many cases, you know, for example, with Nick and with uh, John Kay, you had mind-blowing uh, theoretical understanding of the field combined with really good practitioner knowledge and the other speakers, Charlotte, for example. Um, and I think uh, that point I made at the beginning, I think really I felt vindicated. The idea that, look, we're not looking for laws here, we're not looking for rules, we're looking for patterns. We're looking, the great thing about patterns is, you know, they require a certain degree of judgment, but they do recur. And finding a pattern that happens in one place and seeing if you can replicate it somewhere else. Um, as John Kay said, I think, is one of his closing words in the questions, you know, this is always going to be a bit messy. John's view, it was also John Maynard's Kay, John Maynard Keynes's view, is that ultimately economics and therefore the social sciences should come become a little bit like dentistry. First of all, it should be more a craft than it is a science but also it should be a simple, small-scale, practical thing where you go around using your insights and knowledge to you know, remove pain and uh, just generally improve things at a human scale. You wrote the first paper with Nick Southgate. When was it? So, uh, that was called uh, yeah, Red Hot or Red Herring. Did you think it would be as easy and as hard to get behavioural sciences it's, as a new... It's going to be hard because what you're fighting against is this idea that Anybody who comes up with a rational idea, by which I mean an idea which, if successful, will be easy to explain in retrospect, has an advantage over anybody coming up with something that's slightly counterintuitive or unexpected or creative or oblique, to use John's phrase. And so selling oblique ideas or counterintuitive ideas is never going to be easy because if they fail, you look much sillier than you do if a logical idea fails. So there's an extent to which we seem to be using logic in solutions as a form of reputational insurance. No one ever got fired for proposing something logical. But my argument is that increasingly the problems that persist in the world are kind of logic proof. As I say, you know, if there were a logical solution, we probably would have already found it by now. So the problems that are sticky or the problems that seem to persist are increasingly only going to be solved by people letting go of that kind of rope ladder of reason and being prepared to try something a bit brave, a bit strange, a bit oblique, a bit um, uh, unexpected. And when you started Nudge Stock, what was it you wanted to achieve? It wasn't. I have. To, I can't take credit for Nudge Stock. Actually, that was you and Jez. I think was it Dan? Yeah, it was going to be called Thinkstock. It was originally going to be called Thinkstock, and then it became Nudge Stock. <laughs> and the first one was in London, tagged on to an advertising event, which would have been six years ago now. The second one was in Deal, and then all the subsequent ones have been here in Folkestone. And so. Yes. Um, uh, it, I have to give full credit to both Jez and Dan for inventing Nudge Stock. And they created something. We, we knew we wanted an event which was a mixture of academics, students, uh, clients, agency people, uh, and, and just behavioral science practitioners in general. So we knew we wanted cross-fertilization between groups. And we knew we needed the mix of talks that would create that. And I think we've had... Um, 
as well as being blessed by the weather for the last five years. The first year in London, the weather was absolutely dreadful, but it was in Shoreditch, so it didn't matter that much. Um, but uh, as well as being blessed by the weather, I think we've been blessed by the speakers, and we've also been blessed by uh, maintaining exactly that kind of um, what what I what I call kind of uh, um, I, I suppose it's kind of. Uh, promiscuity between academic fields probably the wrong word but uh, <laughs> uh, that, that point being that the most interesting ideas now don't actually happen within a discipline they happen between disciplines and where do you think behavioral uh, i think nunchstock is always the marker like when you talk this morning it's always kind of this is where we are at the moment where are we um i don't mean folkestone i think what we're doing bit by bit and it'll take bloody years I mean, maybe, maybe there's going to be a kind of sigmoid curve where the whole thing tips. We don't know. That's maybe what a network theorist would predict. But what we're... Well, the first thing is, it's not a red herring. That book, Red Hot and Red Herring, is still published by the IPA. It's still a mandatory part of every IPA training course. And that will be next year. That'll be 10 years, that book's still being printed. OK. So the first thing is, it didn't go away. It wasn't a flash in the pan. Secondly, it's patently growing in popularity, and it's growing in scale, and it's growing in spread. So at what point it taps out, of course, you can never know. But there is the chance, I suppose, of what you might call a sort of, you know, a wide kind of uh, shift in economic and business thinking, where we move away with, from this obsession with kind of economic rationalist, reductionist models. At the same time, even if it doesn't achieve that, and I, I genuinely think, I don't think you can predict whether it will or won't. Um, what it has done already is it's given people at least permission to have a different kind of conversation. Yeah. Okay? So, you know, if you're in a local government organisation 10 years ago and people were dropping litter, the, basically the first default was find them. Well, the second default might have been spend more money picking up litter. Now it's quite likely, by no means inevitable, but it's reasonably likely that someone might suggest behavioural interventions or design interventions. And also, that person won't be looked at as if they're a deranged lunatic. So that, I mean, that's possibly the most important thing, which is maybe, maybe when it's the spread of a virus, you only need one person to be infected to infect somebody else. Maybe with the infection of an idea, the spread of an idea, you need two or three people. You need to reach a reasonable level of mass familiarity. At some point, people finally go, I can now talk about nudge theory without sounding like a deranged lunatic. And within that, and just picking up on Nicholas Christakis's point, is that sometimes it isn't the people you affect, it's the people round the people that you affect. No, and that's the extraordinary thing, that you can have a huge effect on people you've never met, yeah. which is part of the thing from Nicholas's talk, which is really amazing when you think about it. Um, I, found that I also found that research where you actually go to African tribes and find that the shape and, uh, and, and nature of their social networks is pretty much the same as people in the developed West, despite yeah. the fact that there are about 47 different technologies which you might reasonably to have expected to have completely changed the shape of those networks. In other words, the idea that there's maybe the Dunbar number's right, there's something innate about our capacity to cope with groups of people and so forth. But I f and the fact that also the, the nature of the networks which people found themselves in seemed to be uh, hereditary. That, too, was an absolutely fascinating finding. Well, it's been a fascinating day. Rory, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Mr. Roman Mike. <laughs> it's been fantastic. Thank you thank for you. Nudgestock. Pleasure. 
So there we go, ladies and gentlemen, the end of another Nudgestock. We've laughed a little, we've learned a lot. Uh, Michael Paulin has told us how we can redesign our houses with the help of a beetle. Uh, Mark Brooks has showed us how we can improve our chances on dating apps. Um, Caroline Webb has showed us how to have a better day. And Ruth Morgan's told us not to leave our DNA anywhere. By the time you listen to this, all the talks will be on our YouTube page and check out our new Twitter handle at Ogilvy Consulting UK. We're now going to pack down the behavioural science for another year. Um, I've been roaming Mike. Big shout out to my co-presenter Jordan. Uh, Julia as well for putting it all together. And massive thanks to Rory and the team for putting everything on. And we'll see you next year for Nudgestock 2019. Bigger and better. Watch this space. <laughs>